I just want to say one more time that uh, if you're a guest with us, really glad you're here. Take an opportunity to uh, introduce myself. I'm Dirk, pastor here at Encounter Church. If you've been with us for a long time now, if you're a regular, I feel like I should still introduce myself after being away for so long. I am Dirk. I am still a pastor here at Encounter Church, and it's still great to be with you. Uh, True as they say, good to be away, uh, great to be back uh, here. Um, I just want to move maybe into a time of uh, a personal, at least, confession for myself to let all of you um, in on uh, maybe a struggle that I have. You hear these stories every now and again about how when God shows up and does something just awesome, right? When God shows up in somebody's life and they've been struggling or been wanting to hear something, and they have this story that they tell you, man, I've been wondering, I've been asking, and then everything was made clear to me because God just showed me X, Y, and Z. And I just want to confess, I love hearing those stories. But there's a part of my heart that, as much as I love hearing them, there's a part of my heart that just says, why not me? I mean, that's awesome that they got to experience God's tremendous love and grace in that way. But why didn't that happen for me? Or why doesn't it happen more often? Or why do I find myself have to pray constantly without ceasing just to get the slightest hint at what God's direction is in my life? I just heard a story earlier this week. I think it it puts it perfectly. Uh, True story, Jerry, he's uh, um, a director of an orphanage in Mexico. And Jerry, he left the orphanage. He's in the States doing a little uh, fundraising, a little donation gathering. He's got a moving truck, and he's visiting different people in uh, New Mexico, southern Texas. And as he's making his rounds, finishing it off, he's driving back to Mexico, and he's his mind starts to turn towards the items on the list that he wanted to return to to the orphanage with. And his mind starts to wander towards uh, specifically the items on the list that are not in the truck behind him. One item in particular just keeps coming up, and he says, God, you know, what a difference an ice machine would make for this orphanage. I mean, it's not worth spending the the little money that we have on a nice machine. We don't have it, but what a difference it would make. And so he makes what I would consider a, a bold ask to God. He says, before I get to the border, God, give me an ice machine. As he's driving south, nearing, uh, nearing Mexico, um, he stops over for gas one last time before entering the country. And as he's topping off the tank, there's a volunteer fire station uh, not too far away. And he's waiting by the truck, and a guy comes out and says, I know this is odd. We've got some renovations going on in the firehouse right now. Is there any chance, any chance you could use an ice machine? And Jerry's draw just, I mean, drops, right? And he goes, okay, well, I mean, before you get too excited, renovations are coming, contractors coming in. We need you to move this now. I see you have a truck. It's why I came out. Any room on there. I mean, Jerry, through the ground this time, right? As much as I love to hear stories like Jerry's, where it's just so abundantly clear that God is there, 
that God loves us and that God cares. Confession time, there's a part of my heart that says, why don't things like that happen more for me? Why do I have to just search high and low just to get the slightest shred of what God's will is for me? I want to go out on a limb here uh, this morning and say there's probably a few people in the room who have thought the same thing. There's probably a few of you who have just heard stories like Jerry's or maybe like a close friend's. It's something over, almost something as, as trivial as an ice machine. It's not going to make or break an orphanage, but it's just another way that God tells us that he's there, that he loves us, that he cares. And going, cares? I bet there's a few of you in the room now who come at a story like that and goes, I have had serious doubts about this entire operation. I have had serious doubts about how Christians are really good or at least better people than everybody else. I've had serious doubts whether or not the Bible is God's truth, in fact. I have had serious doubts as to whether this whole thing isn't a sham. And I've been searching high and low for years, looking for a reason to come back. And I haven't gotten it. I'm looking for a reason to know that God is there, that he loves us, that he cares. And so why do those things happen to Jerry and not me? Good news this morning is that it's almost as if God anticipates the questions that we have. It's almost as if God can, can, can sense that that we do long for, for some kind of acknowledgement of his presence and that he's good and that he cares. He, he includes for us these stories tucked away in the Old Testament that I, I think there's profound truth in. Um, and it's funny how stories like that are able um, to be carried around with us for a time. You can see some characters on stage here. Junior, the asparagus, Bob, the tomato, Larry, the zucchini, uh, cucumber... <laughs> Almost, almost. I didn't say pickle, which I've done before. So, It's funny how there's stories like that that just have that ability to carry around with us. These guys from Veggie Tales, made for kids, uh, pre-K through kindergarten or uh, fifth grade. I just love these stories, how they apply this truth in a way that kids can carry it around. And, and uh, kids right now who are out in pre-K through fifth grade, they're learning these stories as we speak. If church was in your background, maybe you heard a few of these stories. If it wasn't in your background, your kids are learning them right now, and so are we together. The series that we're in is called Sunday School Revisited. Just a great time uh, to re-explore, reopen up, or maybe open up these uh, Sunday School stories for the first time. We're going to open up a story that I wouldn't really expect uh, many of you to automatically know off the top of your head. It's not the David and Goliath kind of story that um, it gets referenced all the time. It's a story tucked away in the book of Second Kings. There's two, in fact. Um, we're getting there. Not quite. I want to tell you a couple things about Naaman before we jump in. Uh, Naaman is the main character in this story. And as we go into it, just a few things. First of all, we're going to hear him described as a commander of the army of Aram. And I think commander, captain, sergeant, 
maybe general. You get the feeling like, okay, he's a military guy. I just want to point out, um, before we jump, this is more than just a military guy. Um, this, is, uh, this is a higher up than that. This is a time and place when, when the, the country or the kingdom and the, the country's army is almost synonymous with each other. This is a place that war isn't a strange foreign thing. It's a daily routine. If they're not physically entering battle today, they're most likely preparing for battle tomorrow. You can just see how a commander of the army has some sway. Think of him as like uh, number two, number three guy in the country. Other things about Naaman that I, I think we should know going into this is that when we see him, he's carrying around uh, uh, a note in his pocket, a note from the king of Aram that says essentially something to the effect of treat him, treat Naaman, as you would me. Modern day equivalent we think of this is something, guys walking around with a note from the president of a United States saying, uh, hey, here's my letter of recommendation. Probably going to be overkill for any situation he runs into. Uh, other facts about Naaman, not only does he have the position, the status, he shows up on scene with 60 talents of silver. Uh, talent is a rough estimate measurement in those days that said that the largest a man could carry. And so uh, 60, 70 pounds, something, something in there. Uh, times 60 of those. It's a lot. Uh, shows up on scene not only with a silver, also with uh, enough wages to pay 600 men for a year in gold. Shows up on scene with 10, and the text says, uh, uh, like articles of, of clothing or sets of clothing. Think of this like enough material for 10 wardrobes. In modern day equivalent, if we looked it up, the, the dollar value of the silver, the gold, the wardrobes. It's like a truckload of money. I mean, I have no idea. It's just a lot. <laughs> Sorry, I can't be more specific. You get the idea, though. He shows up on scene. He's rich. He's got status. He's got power. When he goes into Israel, he goes in to the palace. Because where else do rich people go when they go to a new place? They're not going to check out the neighborhood Wendy's or the, the Hojo or something. Like They're going to go to the nicest, fanciest place around. The palace. When he shows up on scene, he goes straight to visit the king. Unless they just want to point out that a man like Naaman, who's got the money, the power, the wealth, um, the, the social sway, does not travel alone. We're going to see that he's got horses and chariots that follow him along. He's got his own entourage. That's Naaman. I tell you all of this simply to point out, this is a guy who's used to getting his own way. Let's jump into 2 Kings, verse 5. And I just want you to hear the first verse. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And this one verse captures so much about who Naaman is. This is a man who had power, who had social sway, who had wealth. This is a man who was successful in everything that he set out to do. But it's also a man who had a disease 
that was literally hardening his fingertips and toes. This is a man who had a disease that would work its way up from the fingers and toes to the feet and the hands. He was successful at everything that he put his mind, he set his heart out to do, but also he had a disease that would move up his legs, up his arms, and it would literally reach his heart and lungs and harden them. Naaman knows what's in store for him. Naaman has seen it hundreds, if not thousands of times in other people. He knows what this disease is capable of. He knows how it moves. And he knows for all the wealth, for all the social sway, for all the power, he knows that this will end him. Question. What do you think it is that preoccupies his mind? What do you think it is that when he closes his eyes at night or in the morning or on the road and he starts praying to whatever God may or may not be out there, what do you think it is he prays for? I submit to you that among many other things, Naaman is the kind of guy who who walks into this situation in life and says, I've been successful in everything that I've set out to do. I've been a valiant soldier, two or three, in one of the greatest countries. I would trade it all if God would just show up. I'd give everything just for God to show up on scene and to make me into one of those stories like Jerry, when God does something incredible to demonstrate that he's there, that he loves us, that he cares. We're going to hear the story of Naaman. As we continue to hear it, what I I want you to be reading for, to be looking for, is that there's this sense in which God is, is work. He's at work. And I want you to picture Naaman's heart almost like a garden that's growing. And there's this natural momentum, there's this natural growth to what's growing in the garden. Only there's a few items in there that don't belong. And so not only is God growing the garden, but he also needs to weed it of a few things as well. Uh, this is continuing Second Kings, verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out, had taken, a, taken captive a young girl from Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, it's another state in Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram said. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter he took from the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending you my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? 
Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me, what the king of Israel thinks is happening. Since Israel is sort of on the decline and uh, Aram, the nation, is on the incline, he thinks that the king of Aram sent his number two, number three guy over to Israel and said, here's an impossible disease, cure it or we're at war. And so he thinks, is this some sort of sick, twisted way that this other king is trying to declare war on me? And so he tears his clothes and says, what is going on here? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the, have the man come to me, and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and, stepped, uh, and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, stand, call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the, river, the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? Telling, so he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you some, to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed. I said I'm approaching this with an assumption um, that there's a garden in Naaman's heart that's growing something good. That God is growing something good. Only... Only there needs to be some weeding that has to be done to pull away a few things that don't belong. I think from the story so far, we can, we can sort of start to piece a few of these together as the, the storyteller, the author here, is almost like dropping clues to, to let us know we're talking about a condition of the skin. We're also talking about a condition of the heart. Look at some of the facts of the story with me. We've got, first of all, a servant girl. This one is huge. Uh, it says that uh, raiding bands from Aram, from the nation where Naaman is from, went into her village and took her captive. Now, that's all we hear. We don't hear anything else about the story. There's no other sources that tell us um, who she is or what she's been through. We're left to, to kind of just figure a few things about how that went down. And I don't know. But I have an idea about what it's like to have a raiding band come into your village and take you away. I have an idea that, that's, that that leaves a sour taste in your mouth for the one who ultimately signed the order. I know how raiding bands get paid. They go into a village and they take everything and anything that can find, they can find um, with some value. That may mean gold, silver, items. It could mean people. And she was one of them. She comes back and somehow she ends up serving in, in Naaman's household. I can't imagine what the, uh, what the animosity would be like for this young girl. You know, wondering, if, is there even a village to go back home to? Say, I could get out of here. Could I see mom, dad again? A young girl implies she's 12, 15 years old, something like that. Just wondering for her if there's even any hope at all. 
And what it's like for a young girl, 12, 15 years old, to hear that the one who signs the order has a disease that will end him. And I don't know about you, every inclination in my heart would, yes. God's will be done. Instead, we can see that a servant girl, that his henchmen have taken captive, has offered him life when he faces death. And said, my master, there's someone where I'm from who can heal you. Naaman is one of the head guys in a powerful nation. And he pins his hopes on a servant girl who by every indication should loathe him. In the weeding process of Naaman's heart, I submit to you that there is a humbling process going on. Besides the servant girl, the information that she brings, Aram is on the incline, Israel is on the decline. The king of Israel is terrified that Aram might, might, wait, might want to battle with uh, Israel and Aram. And there's no way that Israel is going to come on top because they're such a low, pithy kind of state. Yet, Naaman, your hope lies in this pithy state. The very fact that Naaman has to pick up the information from the servant girl and go to a tiny neighboring nation that, frankly, they just don't care enough to roll through. I submit to you, God is humbling Naaman. Naaman shows up and he goes where every rich, powerful person goes to with his entourage. He goes to the palace, to the king. King tears his robes and says, can I help you? No. I don't know what to do. A prophet says, send him my way. He shows up not at a grand palace, but at a prophet's house. Expecting to see the man of God, he sends a messenger out to meet Naaman and says, um, Prophet says, wash in the local river seven times and you should be good. <laughs> in uh, verse 11, I expect Naaman, I expected him to come out, wave his hand over the spot where my disease is, and I will be cured. I was expecting some grand gesture of this almighty divine. I was expecting to be sent on a journey up a mountain and slay a bear or a lion. And when I prove that I am worthy, then this God would cure me. How far beneath me is to tell me to wash in a dirty river? I'll not do it. Are not the rivers of... Uh, far par in Abana, much cleaner. Objectively, they are. Rivers are still around. These rivers come out of the mountains, melted snow, crisp, clean, clear, cold. Jordan connects two semi-stagnant bodies of water. It's muddy. It's dirty. The other rivers were better. But he wasn't told to go to the other rivers up a mountain. He was told to go to this one. 
I submit to you. God is humbling Naaman. In the garden of his heart, there's something rooted in there that just does not belong. And until God can pick that clean, he says, it's not about the leprosy. It's about knowing where you stand and where I stand. It's about you knowing who I am. Um, Next up, the river's not very far away. I mean, it's just down the road, across town, something sort of like that. It may be muddy, but everybody does it. It's their local river. It's where they go. He's expecting this grand gesture about, and his servants say, would you not have done essentially anything in order to be cleansed of this? Have you, has this not preoccupied your mind since day one? Yet you won't even do this thing? I mean, it's such a small act here. At least just, just humor us. In the weeding of his heart, you can see this, this humbling process. And you can also see this being faithful with something so small, something so seemingly insignificant. I read a passage to, as our first word this morning from a parable in, in Matthew, where the master turns to this uh, faithful servant and he says, Well done. You've been faithful with a little. You'll get a lot. Come, share in my happiness. Yes, yes, yes. Well done. You've been faithful with a little. That's all that uh, Naaman's servants were telling him. Naaman, you want to go after the, the, the big accomplishment. Just be faithful with a little. You want to go after just this incredible accomplishment that people will will all herald you for because of your intellect, because of your skill. Be faithful with a little. Lessons that he has to learn, humility, faithfulness, even with the small things. Finish out that verse. Verse 14 So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant, a truckload of money. The prophet answers, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I'll not accept a thing. And though Naaman urged him, he refused. He learns humility. He learns faithfulness, even with the small things. And then he learns grace. If the prophet would have accepted the gift... It would have cheapened the entire thing. If the prophet accepts and says, okay, now that the service is rendered, I'll accept payment. That's how it works. How it works is just how we've set up our services here. When we come together, it's God who always has the first word. It's God who has the last word. It's how grace works when God comes to us first and opens that door.
It's God who comes to us first in baptism to take this step towards us, to say, you're mine. It's God to us who comes to us first in communion, which we celebrated last week, and says, you belong to me. I will give you the first meal, the first bread, the first juice. He learns humility, he learns faithfulness, even with a small thing, and he learns grace. What would it be like? What would it be like when we ask ourselves those same questions of why doesn't God show up? Why doesn't God show up like he did for Jerry, like he did for Naaman, and demonstrate that he's there, that he loves us, and that he cares? What would it be like if, like Naaman, God was weeding the gardens of our heart and saying, there are a few things growing that simply don't belong. And he was weeding out the pride and planting humility. And he was weeding out the the ambition and planting faithfulness, even with the small things. He's weeding out the, this idea that somehow we can, we can figure it out, that we can earn it, that we can do it, and he's planting grace. What would it be like? Faithfulness, even with the small things. Opening up the word one more time this week, just to hear God speak. Making one more prayer this week, just to, just to talk to God One more time. The kicker, in my view, is that we think that this is a story about how God showed up and healed Naaman of his leprosy. I don't think the storyteller so much cares about that. Because as we start off, we hear that this is a high up uh, commander in a foreign land searching for an answer. By the way, he has leprosy, and he's dying. He goes through this learning process of humility, faithfulness with the small things, and grace. And his leprosy is healed. To finish out this story, it's not about the leprosy anymore. To finish the story off, it's about this is who God is. I just submit to you that the leprosy is almost like a vehicle for the storyteller to get it across. When you hear a story about Jerry, it's not like, oh man, that ice maker. How many cubes does that puppy put out an hour? (laughs) The story is about God showing up and demonstrating that he's there, that he loves us, that he cares. When the story ends, we see a commander in a foreign army saying, there is no God but this one. And I'll serve him. I hope you do too. Everybody just stand up. Let's pray together. Heavenly God, like that servant girl offering her forgiveness, you have given yours to us. It cost you, Jesus, your life. And we thank you for it. God, help us to accept this gift of grace. Help us to carry it around this week. Help us to be faithful with the small things. Teach us humility. In your name we pray. Amen.